Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest has seamlessly married the world of biochemistry with the deeply personal realm of mental health. Jillian Teets isn't just your average chemistry professor from a prestigious university in Boston. She's also the mastermind behind the Sober Powered Podcast, a top 100 mental health podcast that delves deep into the science of how alcohol affects our brains. Her personal journey to sobriety in 2019 not only transformed her life, but also ignited a passion to teach others about the intricacies of addiction, all underpinned by her rich biochemistry background. Beyond this, Jillian's commitment to mental health discourse extends further as she is the founder of Sober Powered Media, a dedicated network for mental health podcasts. Whether you're a science aficionado or someone curious about the intersections of sobriety and mental health, Jillian's insights are bound to resonate. Unfiltered with Matt Farnsworth. Can you tell us a little bit about you, about like who you were, your drinking habits, what caused you to want to change your life, how you started getting sober and how you developed all these programs and these things that you're working on, just maybe like a, a 30,000 foot overview. And then maybe we can dive in a little deeper once we get to that. Yeah. So I, um, I drank for seven years and I started late. So I didn't start drinking till I was 22. And I think that's something that's kind of different about my story. There's a lot of people that start really young and I did not drink in high school. I had one drink when I was 18 and I was on a cruise to Bermuda, and it was legal for 18-year-olds to have a drink. I had my parents' permission. The law said it was okay. So I wasn't doing anything wrong, but I remember I felt intense shame in my very first drink. Like as soon as I got a little flutter, and from half a glass of wine, you're not getting drunk, but I had a little flutter and I immediately thought, like, I messed up. I'm a bad person. I didn't really understand alcohol. And I thought it was just like this adult drink that didn't really do anything to you. And if you got drunk and you got the effects, it was because you didn't have self-control. So I thought that I was one of those people that was bad with no self-control. And that really scared me away from drinking for years. So I didn't drink in college at all. And then the only reason I started, I was actually very secure not drinking. I just didn't want to do it. And I didn't mind when other people did or if I went on dates and the guys did, it was whatever. But when I went to graduate school, I was the only one that didn't drink. And all the professors would drink with the students and there'd be parties in the school, and people had alcohol on their desks. Um, I went to school for science, and it's a big part of the working culture, just to have alcohol around and have a lot of happy hours. And I felt like people wouldn't like me if I didn't do it too. So I just started ordering what other people were getting. And it took a couple times, but the first time that I got a real buzz, I was like, okay, <laughs> this is why everybody has been doing this. Now I get it. 
And then I was just ready to go. And mm-hmm. the culture in grad school was you, when you're going to school for the sciences, you do your classes and then you work in a lab, like basically full time. So it felt like going to work every day, not as much school. So we would work all day and then we'd go to the bar every night. And I immediately could not control my drinking. I didn't understand how much was too much. I was messing up, um, getting sick, (laughs) embarrassing myself. And it progressed pretty quickly. There's a phenomenon that I learned in sobriety called telescoping. And that's something that can happen to some people if you have um, trauma or depression or anxiety, things like that. It can cause you to progress rapidly into addiction. How does that work, telescoping? Now, you got you got, you got to tell me. I, I got to know. It's all about the way that your brain works. And some people's brains, if they've been exposed to trauma – or if they struggle with depression or anxiety, their reward system is more sensitive to the positive effects of alcohol. And um, it might feel better for them, which is why they'll do it more often. And it's just easier to reinforce why alcohol is the solution. So you keep coming back to it and you progress faster where a a drinker who does not experience telescoping, they may be like a quote normal drinker for a while. And then after enough exposure, their reward system starts to adapt and they progress down the line. So it really depends on your history, your genetics, what you've been exposed to. Trauma has a big impact and um, pre-existing mental health conditions can also cause it. So if I'm telescoping, or I'm someone that would telescope, when I'm finished drinking the next day, do I have the withdrawal symptoms come on even stronger than someone who doesn't telescope? That's a great question. Um, Not necessarily. It's just that you move through the stages faster. So where it might take the average person like five years to get to an addicted state, you could do it in like one. So then you would ex- you would start to experience those withdrawal symptoms sooner than other people. You're just accelerating the timeline. That's all it is. Things happen faster. Wow. What an interesting concept. And that, that would mean also, I, I would assume that that is the predisposition to alcoholism, that telescoping is you're one of the people that has that predisposition as well. Yeah, yeah, there's there's risks and protective factors that all kind of come together in a person to make you more or less vulnerable. And I have a lot of risk factors and not a lot of protective factors. So I moved quickly through the like, I don't think I was ever a regular drinker, but through the not horrible drinking to like daily problematic drinking. Um, I did that like within a year. So I was a daily drinker by the end of my first year of drinking. 
yeah. and then I got I, stuck there, obviously, because once you're once you're a daily drinker, it's hard to hard mm-hmm. to not be a daily drinker. Yeah, there's it's hard not to. It really is because it's it really is the the chemical itself is the prescription to cure the hangover, isn't it? And I, wow, that's such a powerful thought, the telescoping. And to look back, I started young, far too young. And I know that there's, you're way more likely to develop alcoholism if you start young, right? Yeah, I think that it's about like 50% of kids that start 14 or younger will go on to develop an addiction. And if you look at people that waited until they were um, like 18 to 21, it's about like nine or 10%. So it's a huge factor for developing a problem. And anyone that started 14 or under, like it's 50%. So it's really hard not to. And that's because your brain is still developing. And when you're that age, your brain is really sensitive and alcohol will actually change the way that your brain develops. So if you had never been exposed to it, you would have a different brain as an adult, but your brain has been impacted by alcohol. So it develops to be more sensitive to it for alcohol to be more rewarding or drugs or whatever it is. And if alcohol is more rewarding for you, then you're more likely to do it a lot. It does feel good, I must say. It took away <laughs> anxiety and all the issues immediately. Uh, uh, socially, I was able to adapt and uh, feel wonderful. The problem is, is I would drink and I would get to a certain point and it would like level off. And I had to keep drinking in order to achieve that you know, initial high, but I would never get back to the original warm hug that it gave me, but I kept chasing it. Same. And it used to make me so mad because I didn't actually like being drunk. And I know that might sound weird to a lot of people. I actually hated being drunk because I didn't like feeling out of control. I was very prone to blacking out and I hated that. I was also very prone to embarrassing myself. (laughs) So I just wanted to be buzzed and then just stay there for like six hours. And I didn't understand that you can't really maintain it. Uh, The buzz just kind of shows up and then goes away or you progress into being really drunk. But I was always chasing that like first hour. And then at the end of my drinking, I would skip the buzz completely and I'd be like feeling sober and then I'd just be smashed. And it used to make me so angry because the buzz was my favorite part and I couldn't achieve it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to just be able to have that first three drinks happen over and over again. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. I wish it did. I tried for years to make that happen. Um how interesting. And then blacking out, that's another topic that's really frightening. I was prone to that as well. And I remember thinking back in the day when I would drink, especially when I was younger, am I going to black out? And and it didn't stop me. I still drank 
because I wanted that feeling so badly of that initial buzz. It was, it was great. Um, but when we black out, you know, this is, this is obviously our brain is at the hippocampus. I mean, something shuts off, the neurons stop firing, um, and we lose all of our short-term memory. That to me is one of the most frightening things that I did was take a chemical that shuts my brain off so that I can't remember the things that I'm doing. And we walk around like normal and no one would know. My husband is just a regular guy. And he said to me once recently, he's like, you never really blacked out. And I was like, oh my God, it was like weekly or more and you didn't even know and you've been with me for 10 years. It's mm. scary. We walk around like completely normal, but we're not present. So people don't experience that detachment that we have from reality. They think we're still in it with them, even though we're sleepwalking right in front of them doing things that we're never going to remember. Wow. Wow. And to think if you weren't with your husband or, you know, I wasn't in situations that were relatively safe, what would happen to us? Exactly. Yeah. Especially as a woman, it is very dangerous. There were a couple times where I was not with my husband and I look back and it's just like, geez, like what a situation that you ended up in because you thought you could moderate and then surprise you didn't, even though you've had a 0% success rate with moderation. Mm -hmm. And it's really scary. You're so vulnerable because you're not there. You're just mm -hmm. a body walking around doing kind of what you're used to doing, but you're not actually thinking about anything. So true. And your story is interesting because, you know, I'm a bit cerebral at times. I'm sure you are as well. You're a student. Now you're a professor. You, you have these, this background and well, first thing I heard also was people pleasing. Like early on, I want to fit in, um, and sort of people pleasing. And I know that's a lot of us. And, uh, I spoke to someone yesterday as well that had been in the, uh, in law enforcement and, is a therapist in alcohol addiction, developed addiction. And she said, you know, one of my biggest problems was people pleasing. I wanted to please and fit in. And I didn't want, I never, I, could, I couldn't learn how to say no. Do you find that to be kind of true, the people pleasing aspect? I am still working on not doing it. Um, so my name is spelled with a G. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people call me Gil, like 50% of people. And it really bothers me because that's not my name. I wouldn't have thought that. I mean, I immediately. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you did, you wouldn't be the only one to do it. And I struggle to correct people with what my name actually is. And it's all because of people pleasing. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But really, I want everybody to like me. So correcting them on how my name is actually pronounced is going to make them not like, it's crazy, but it's something that I've always really struggled with and I'm finally addressing it now in sobriety. It's easy to use that chemical and just kind of forget about it. 
makes you detach from all those negative feelings and the stress of trying to please people is gone when we have the chemical. And um, I, I, that's, that's interesting that, that you do. I did the same thing. I was very much a people pleaser and, and occasionally, you know, seeking outside validation, which I think led to my, a lot more of my drinking and also the expectations that I had. I had a lot of high expectations that I could never really meet. And I think that was almost self-made because then I could say, well, that didn't happen the way I wanted it to. I'm upset. Let me drink. And I would do that often. But uh, one other thing that was really interesting that you were mentioning is that you, you tried to, did you try to manage your drinking? Like, I mean, you're like, how can I do this? Are there ways that I can manage this and just take a little time off? Like, I know that's, I've sort of been watching your Instagram. I've looked at a lot of your content. You're like, you know, can I take a break from drinking and then come back to it? Can I, you know, you, you, you answer a lot of questions that a lot of people answer that a lot of people rather ask themselves when they're in denial. So do you, um, how do you, how do you handle that? Did you try to go back and forth and try to quit? And how many times did it take? How did that work? Yeah. So by the end of my first year, I was a daily drinker by the almost not even end of my second year, my tolerance had like doubled and I was getting drunk multiple nights a week and I was a teacher back then and I would go teach completely hungover which is absolute torture to teach 30 kids when you're hungover Ooh. and it was the tolerance increase once I realized the quantity of alcohol that I was drinking every day I was like this is way too much what is going on here so naturally, I should just cut back and drink less. And I tried to moderate for five years. And I was a daily drinker this whole time because I thought if I could practice stopping, I would learn how to do it naturally, <laughs> which now I'm like, I'm laughing at, but I really, really believed it. If I could, so breaks wouldn't help me. I needed to practice starting and stopping. So therefore, I must drink every day. And uh, practicing didn't help. And then eventually, the consequences started building over the years. And I was desperate. And that's when I took breaks. And I didn't take the break to see what sobriety was about. I took the break to cure myself and to prove I wasn't an alcoholic and if I could stop and it wasn't that hard, I must not have a problem. And I thought if I could just stop for long enough, I would reset my tolerance and break the bad habit and all these lies that we tell ourselves. And so I did a 90-day challenge to cure myself. And I was actually cured for two months. I drank only on Saturdays, two glasses of wine, and I stopped on my own, not because the alcohol ran out or someone else stopped me. I stopped by choice. The other six days, I didn't want to drink at all, but I had to isolate myself the entire time to be able to do that. I had to completely stop socializing 
because I can't socialize without drinking and I can't moderate. And I was pumped about it. I'm like, I figured it out. I solved the problem until my husband and I went on a cruise with the drink package and I wanted to be a special occasion drinker. So I'll just drink the way I want to on vacation, which that thought alone that I'll drink the way I want to, that should have been a sign, but it wasn't. So I drank all day and all night on vacation. I humiliated myself so bad. I can't even look at the pictures because of the memories. And then when I got home, I was right back in it. Daily drinking, no control, couldn't stop. I was chugging like it had progressed and I couldn't get back out of it. It took um, it took four months to get back out of that. Um, so that's why I always urge people like don't test it out because <laughs> it might not be a one-day test. It might be four months or a year of complete misery. But I had to get that data and see that I couldn't change my drinking no matter what I did to actually accept that I need to be sober. Wow. I resonate with that. I did not drink for 13 years. Wow. Until I was, I think from the time I was 20, 26, 27, until I was almost 40. And I ended up going back to it. I went through a rough time, a rough divorce, and alcohol was brought back in. But the relapse, as I say in many of my podcasts, didn't happen that night that I took that drink. It happened before that. It happened in my brain long before that. I had started thinking differently. And I took that drink, and it took less than less than five months, and I was flipping a car six times without a seatbelt on. It didn't take long. I was right back to where I was and uh, it, the first week I told myself it's all good and I did drink once, maybe twice a week and then it became two beers, then it became one more beer and I kept convincing myself I was okay. I said, I'm almost 40 years old. I can handle this. Like this you is You did fine. 13 years. I did. So you got this. Yeah. I'm like, I did 13 years. No big deal. I'm older now. I, I, I was in my 20s when I stopped. So I thought, well, I mean, I'm advanced now. I'm, I'm you know, I'm a lot more mature than I was. And I know it takes men longer <laughs> to mature. So I'll just, I'll just take a drink. And, you know, it, life just went downhill really quickly. So progressive it is. And I learned that the hard way too. So that was, that was tough for me. And, um, recovery was uh, very difficult to start because when they take away that chemical and don't know if this happened to you, but when the chemical was taken away, I was left with a lot of raw emotions and trying to handle why I wanted to use this chemical in the first place to make me socialize, to make me feel better, um, to make me more jovial when I first have it. Um, and to just overall make me feel better. So how did you, how did you feel when you first quit? I mean, did you have to deal with a lot of the emotionality that went along with, you said trauma early, you know, early in life, telescoping. Um, how do we handle, how do you handle that trauma? What did you do to start working on that? 
I was pissed when I quit drinking. So angry. I was mad that I couldn't drink and other people could. I was mad that no one tried to help me while I was drinking. That was a big one. That one stayed with me for a long time. I was mad um, about all the stuff that happened to me in my life that led me to this path. I was just really, and I was mad for no reason. I was just mad because I could be. And I didn't have alcohol to make it go away anymore. So I was just mad all the time. And it sucked. And in the beginning, I would get so filled with rage that it was hard to even function for me. Like it would stay with me for days. And I didn't even know how to live my life with all that anger that I was feeling. And I went to therapy and I still work with the same therapist um, over three years later. And she helped me to understand like why I was so mad and what my triggers were. And that was really important. And then I began to learn coping skills for that anger instead of just sitting there and suffering with it or like drinking or eating at it. Um, But it was it was really hard. The feelings were so intense in the beginning and it felt like it was always going to be that way. And now my life is very stable and calm. I still get mad, but I can recover from my emotions now and I know how to process them and they're not as extreme. Um, But that first year really was very emotional for me. Yeah, it was tough for me too. I've been exactly where you were. And I thought life was going to be so boring. Yes. I was angry. Like this is going to be boring. And my life today, I look at it and it's so far from boring. Um, there are times that I will look back and I'll be like, maybe I had that inkling of a feeling where drinking was fun. I, I mean, I don't deny that there was a glamorous lifestyle I had, especially when I was in Hollywood, sort of going to Sunset Boulevard and having a good time. But then you look at it and you say, wow, but my life is so valuable now. Everything I have, everything I've worked for is real. It's not... It's not fake. It's not a chemical. It's it's real life, and I love it. And I I feel you. The 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 part about being angry. It was like a monster. Like I was a monster when I first quit drinking, and the monster was raging. And I had to figure out like why the monster was there, what was wrong with it, and then like they said, we need to shrink that monster down, cage it up, and put it back inside. It's never going to go away. Like you said, you still get pissed, right? Yeah, and people always say, I can't imagine you being mad. (laughs) Like I get it, but it's always the people that you don't expect (laughs) that are, and my rage is directed internally. I don't, I don't take it out on other people. I take it out on myself. Um, But I've learned not to do that too. Because when you do take it out on yourself, eventually it manifests as outwardly toward mainly the people that you care about most. I know for me anyway, it was, it was, I, I, I self-sabotage 
you do a lot of teaching. You you've got programs for people that you you know that seem very very well thought out and. I've been sort of going over some of the course outline and, and looking at everything that you do. And I'm interested, like, you know, when you're talking to people and you're like, okay, I'm going to help you get through your first day sober. How does that look? What does that look like for you when you, when you try to help people get through their first day sober? What would you tell someone that is like, okay, I'm fed up with this. I don't feel good. I'm sick. I want to quit. What do we do next? I was actually just uh, speaking to someone couple hours ago about this, um, they reached out to me basically saying that. Mm -hmm. I think what I see the most is resistance to getting help. And they want to stop really bad in the moment. They're extremely miserable. But it is hard for them. There's like a block there to accept that they need help. And it's often people who have been trying it on their own for a long time and it's not working and things are getting worse. But there's still that block I've found with a lot of people where they still feel like they want to do it alone or that they need to prove something um, and they don't need support. So I think what I always recommend is just get connected, what, however you're willing to do it. If that's going to a meeting virtually with your camera off and not participating at all, but just listening with a fake name on your Zoom account or whatever, or joining a Facebook group or joining a community or some kind of support, people will go to Instagram a lot, but it's only one way. Like we're not interacting with them directly. They're consuming our content. Sometimes we're responding to them, but it's not the same. You need people to actually be in community with you. So th that's what I find the most when I talk to people is resistance to trying it a different way. And I was extremely resistant. I thought that I wasn't like other people, so I didn't need help. So I should just do it on my own because I'm different. And that no wonder I was mad all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I felt alone and I struggled with self-loathing. And then my first way of getting support was going to therapy and actually having a conversation with someone and listening to their feedback on my experience. But that that is the hardest step, I think, for people, is just accepting that that you can't do it alone. Nothing changes if nothing changes, right? And I, I think a lot of us want it on our own terms, and that's kind of how we got into trouble in the first place. I did anyway. And when I was first in recovery, I experienced exactly what you were talking about in therapy, which was you're actually not special. I, I mean, I had to learn that I'm not a unique, you know, uh, being in this world. I'm not really special that the people in there were just like me. And it didn't matter what job they did, what race they were, what sex they were. None of it mattered. We all had this universal issue and it 
it was all the same. The stories were so similar. All the through lines, everything that happened was so similar. And so I started to realize, yeah, I'm really not, I'm not that special and I should be here. And I think that is kind of where I started to, I started to heal because the, like you said, sh sharing the story, I believe in the power of shared experience. And sharing the story really does help, doesn't it? It it diminishes the pain that we're in, and it also shines a light on those issues that have caused us to want to use. And in recognizing those issues, we begin to see that we maybe don't need the chemical to get through those issues. But until we see them, how do we how do we deal with them? And I guess you're talking about when you mentioned it's hard to get people to to do that. It's, it's probably really hard to get people to actually want to look at that darkness inside them, isn't it? Yeah. And you make a really great point. I, I feel like you echo all of my thoughts this whole conversation, but I thought that I was the only one who had ever experienced what I had experienced. No one suffered in the way that I had suffered. So therefore, why would I get support from people who don't get me? Because I'm the only one. And once I started opening up and just dabbling in communities with other sober people or people who are trying to quit, sometimes people would share even very minor things and I could relate to it or I had done it. And a big part of my story, the reason that I ended up quitting was because I got really suicidal at the end from all of the drinking and the low self-esteem. And I thought that I was the only person who had ever been suicidal because of my drinking. And I felt afraid to share it. I thought that even though it had been months later, uh, like months of sobriety that like they'd call the police on me <laughs> because I used to be suicidal when wow. I got drunk. And so I was scared to talk about it. And the very first time I shared in a private group, so many people reached out and they were like, me too. I felt the same way or they had, they didn't get out as quickly as I did and the suicidal thoughts progressed, but thankfully they were still here um, and they shared their stories with me. And I was like, oh my gosh, if other people have experienced this too, then what else do we share? And I think it was in realizing that, that I became more open to the sober community, but I really truly believed that no one would ever understand because no one went through what I went through. Trust. You started to trust that community because they had a shared story. Yeah. I did too. Uh, and I, I'm not immune to the suicidal thoughts. And I think a lot of us have those. Thanks for sharing that. That's, that's deep. I, um, when I got, when I got into my accident and I shared this on the last, po last podcast, but it comes up often and it's kind of important because you know, suicide can look so different in so many different 
there's so many different aspects to it and so many different ways people are doing it. I mean, people that drink daily that have health complications are slowly killing themselves. But when I got into the accident, the hospital said, you should not leave. You have a broken wingtip vertebrae, which is a broken neck. And you've got, we don't know if you've got blood clots. We don't know what's happening to you. You need to stay. And I said, no, give me the paper. I'm signing myself out. Signed myself out, gathered up my clothes, went back to the residence in that I was staying at, walked around the corner, bought a bottle of booze and drank it all, passed out. Was that an attempt at suicide? You know, maybe, maybe. And so I feel you on that level. And um, in recovery, I, I did have to learn to trust people. And I didn't share my story at first either. I wasn't very open about it. I just needed to listen. And thankfully, I was forced to. I didn't even want to go. I was pissed. I was like, I'm fine. I don't need to go. I know I've been in an accident. I know I've... <laughs> I know I broke my neck. I know I'm It was just a one-time thing. It's just no (laughs) no big deal. Just broken neck. I've been drinking daily. I um I I don't have a job anymore. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I didn't want to admit rock bottom, even though it was visually obvious. You could look at me and say, wow, that guy is a hot mess. He's in bad shape. And that's when it happened. I looked around the room in recovery and I, nobody looked like me. I was in the worst shape of anyone there. And I think that's when it happened for me. I started to say, oh, wow, I'm not special. Like I have one of the worst cases here. And uh, so that was, that was kind of what happened to me as I was like, okay, I better start listening here. And I noticed, started to notice that the people who didn't listen or who really grappled with sharing had issues. They, they, you could see it in the group. They wouldn't really truthfully come to the table and talk, or they didn't want to identify as an alcoholic. They continued to sort of digress. They didn't do as well. And the people that really started to share and seemed to really care about others in the group, they started to do really well. And that was one thing, I don't know if this happened to you, but like helping other people. This is kind of what changed me because I wasn't a big helper of other people when I first, you know, especially when I was drinking. But when I first got sober, I started to learn that helping others actually in turn helps me. Did you find that to be uh, the case for you as well? Yeah, exactly. Um, It's good accountability for us first of all. And it's it's good to pay it back because other people were there for us. And now we can be there for the new guy. Um, and it, it also helps me to remember where I came from because it's easy to think it's been, you know, you did it. I don't have to explain it. It's been long enough. I got it this time and let those thoughts of moderating in. And when you stay connected with the newbies and you're being helpful and supportive, you remember what you went through. It's easy to forget how much it sucked or the way you used to think when you have a lot of distance. So that's another reason I like being part of the sober community is I remember 
exactly what it used to be like. And sometimes someone will say something and I hadn't thought about it for years. And it's like, oh, that was the worst. I never want to go through that again. So it keeps me on the path. Helping newcomers to navigate through is, well, it's difficult. It really is. But it really is rewarding when they listen and they, you start to see that that glimmer of hope and they, they start to do really well. They get 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And you see their life change. Um, you see their life change. So in that first 90 days, what is actually happening to our brains? I mean, what I, 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 this is something you have a lot of knowledge about. So is, does it change rapidly like the first 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and then is like pause post-acute withdrawal syndrome, is that a real thing? I know I felt like it was, but can you elaborate on sort of how, how all of that plays into recovery and even the pink cloud, like what happens to our brain when we're in these stages where at first we, you know, we go through this phase where it's just a nightmare and then it's like, oh, I'm on top of the world. And then we just kind of, it's like a roller coaster. What's happening there? So as far as improvements in the first 30 days, that's when there's going to be a lot of physical improvements. The body recovers quicker than the brain. And you'll start feeling better. Maybe your sleep won't be great. Maybe it will. Everybody's different, but heartburn might go away. Your resting heart rate should decrease, blood pressure, cholesterol. Your liver does a lot of healing. Um, you just generally have more wellness than you did before. So the body heals pretty quick. Um, the brain and your cognitive power takes longer. Uh, the emotion centers of the brain take longer to heal. So alcohol damages all parts of the brain. And it changes the brain because um, the brain is not a static thing. It We have neuroplasticity, that's the term. So the brain can always change and adapt. So over the years that we were drinking, the brain is adapting to our drinking, to the way that we perceive things, to the way that we react, and any traumas that we've experienced. And it takes time for that to go back to normal or to get better. So mm. by 60 days, there should be some noticeable cognitive improvements for me and what I've heard from a lot of people that I work with. Um, around 60-ish days, there's like a burst in mental clarity. It's like the fog lifts, like you're waking up out of a dream and you can actually think clearly for the first time. For some people that might be delayed, that depends on, you know, I drank for seven years. If you drink for 40 years, it's going to take you a bit. Um, and then over the first year, there's a lot of healing. I think with the pink cloud, I had a huge pink cloud because I wasn't suicidal when I stopped drinking. So I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> Look mm -hmm. at me. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't want bad things to happen to myself anymore. Um, and all the improvements and keeping that little promise to myself every day was exciting. 
So the pink cloud is a very exciting stage where you just think sobriety is the best. The improvements are happening so fast. It's like a new high, but eventually that evens out. And that's where a lot of people fall off is the improvements even out, but you still can't drink. And that's a trigger to want to enhance your situation or you're like, I feel good. I feel physically good. I could drink again. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of people fall off when the pink cloud ends. Um, And then during the first year, there's a lot of improvement to our brain and the way that it works, um, the way that it can communicate with itself. In the beginning, in the first few months, our emotions are all over the place and they're more intense. And that's not something that happens because you can't cope or you suck. It's actually your brain. Um, Your emotions are heightened. Your brain's trying to figure out like how to function again without alcohol around. And as the brain heals, you can have more peace and calm feelings. Um, So that's another trigger for relapse is the heightened emotions. And then pause can come into play. A lot of us think Like we go through withdrawal and then we get out of it and we're like, okay, I'm sober now. I'm good. But you didn't heal years of alcohol-induced brain damage in two weeks of withdrawal. So pause is the long-term healing of the brain. And it can take six months. It can take two years. It depends on the person, their genetics, how long they drank, how often, um, how many relapses they've had. Alcohol affects women more than men just because of our biology. So it depends on a lot of different factors. But the most common misconception that I see about pause is it's just like constant suffering. And it's not. It's, it's mostly mood-related symptoms like being cranky or um, foggy, or feeling anxious and depressed, all things that we drank at before, unfortunately, and it's triggered by something in your life, a person, um, your job, uh, some kind of stressful situation, um, and that triggers these mood-related symptoms, and they don't last forever, It's generally a few days and then you can start to come out of it. But each time it happens, it can be very triggering and people can fall off and drink again. But I think the most important thing for people to know about pause is it's your brain healing itself and making new connections. And when we're drinking, we reinforce one path like depression, drink alcohol, Anxiety, drink alcohol. Um, Bad day at work, drink alcohol. And all paths lead to alcohol, which is the solution. And that pathway doesn't just disappear. It's actually in your brain. And that's why this is a permanent thing. And you couldn't cure yourself and I couldn't cure myself. And it can become less active and weaker when we reinforce other things um, like depression, call a friend, or anxiety, go to the gym, hard day at work, 
uh, vent to your spouse or go to therapy. As we reinforce positive coping mechanisms, those paths become stronger and the alcohol path becomes weaker, but it takes time. And that's what pause is. It's just your brain is healing over time. And I know it's hard to be patient because we it can make us feel like sobriety really sucks. And why even bother if I'm not going to feel good? But you're definitely not going to feel good if you drink and reset your timeline. Um, so it can be frustrating, but everybody's different. Not everyone experiences pause, and sometimes you won't even know that you're experiencing it. Sometimes you'll just have anxiety or irritability, and you'll just think it's a regular part of your life. It's not like it's this big, huge, life-altering mood. So sometimes you might not even be able to detect that you're experiencing it. So for anyone freaking out about it, um, try to have try to have hope and an open mind. I know it's hard. That was great. This too shall pass, right? It's so difficult. And that was the best description I've ever heard of pause and how it relates to, I guess, the neuroplasticity and how it changes and how we have to redevelop these neurons to fire into, I don't know what the right synapses. Like we've, we've met, have we, we've, we've changed our brains so much with alcohol that it's trained and there's yep. like a pathway directly to the drink every yep. time there's a problem. And we sort of have to put these walls up and say, oh, redirect. You need to go this way with that one. Do you need to reset these? This I like see a hallway. Exactly, when you were talking, yeah. I see like a path, like a hallway in my brain. Like I'm in like being John Malkovich here or something. But, you know, I see this pathway and then there's these doors you can choose instead of that one at the end of the hall, which you would always go to, which would be alcohol. Yeah. And in the beginning, it is hard and it mm -hmm. takes brain power and effort to choose a different door. But with experience and as you build up the positive coping pathways, it's not that hard anymore. Now, when I have a problem, if someone makes me mad, I don't immediately think like, I want to get drunk and ruin my life. If something really bad happens, I might still have that instinct. And then I'm like, Ugh, oh my gosh, no. But in the beginning, it takes a lot of effort to make a better choice. But it's not always going to take that much effort. With practice, it can be second nature, just like drinking was for us. Yeah. And, and what you say is so important for people to understand because that hallway, if you do not reinforce it, I would assume with positive reinforcement can turn into excess shopping, pornography. It can turn into many different things. And I would assume those would all be cross addictions and negative. Yes. Yeah. And that that is a huge risk in mm -hmm. sobriety too, especially if you had something, maybe like a second place problem, but then alcohol is just better. Like a lot of people will struggle with disordered eating. Yeah. or emotional eating and it was it was an issue for them but drinking was just better at solving their problems when the drinking goes away now what's first place for solving your problem so it's very easy to move to something else that's going to give us instant gratification and it's a lot of people do it with sugar yeah 
and it's not horrible. Most of us do it. We eat a lot of sugar. It's something to be mindful of. You don't have to be perfect. But if you're trying to replace alcohol with pot or shopping or sex or porn um, or sugar, it's something to be mindful of because we do have to develop the coping skills and you can't develop a good coping skill if you are blasting yourself with chocolate every single time you have a problem. So I don't think that we have to like cut out everything else like chocolate or shopping, but just be honest with ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. Did you eat a lot of sugar? I wasn't too terrible, but I ate a lot. I did enjoy eating. I threw myself into physical activity. Yeah, that's another one that people do a lot. That's a good one though. It's It was good. I would walk 20 miles a day when I first got sober and I would walk with the neck brace on. It was funny. I would walk around <laughs> and, uh, and I looked, I mean, I, I grew a beard that was probably down to here and I was just a mess. I was in such a different state of mind. It's like my whole world had been turned upside down. I didn't even know who I was. And so I really did have to reset my brain. And I think the walking helped me to stay yep. sane. And I did that too. Did you? I walked. I walked like I would walk to meetings. I didn't have a car, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had to do that. And um, I walked to AA meetings. I would go and I'd walk 20 miles a day to different AA meetings. And I, it was a transformational time for me. And I tried not, I, I didn't look at any, like, I didn't go on, you know, websites and look at porn. I didn't jump on dating apps. I didn't do anything that a lot of the guys in the recovery home would do. Um, I tried to really, I tried to really work on it because I knew after a little while that none of this was going to get better. It was like, life wasn't going to somehow just become great. There were still going to be problems. There were still going to be issues that I was going to have to deal with in my life without this drug, without alcohol. And I think you bring up a really good point when you say we have to rebuild these, you know, the neuroplasticity of the neurons in our brain have to learn how to reconnect properly in positive reinforcement. Because if we don't do that, we end up in the same cycle. So if we do end up quitting alcohol, but then we go to shopping or we go to sugar or we go to pornography or we go to eating disorders it's just manifesting in a different way. And then we're going to end up back in the same place that we always were. But if we reinforce it with positive, we're going to start to see those rewards in our life. And that's kind of where I got with sobriety. And I'm sure you did too, as you started to see that if you can do the work to reconnect these, you know, this, this, these pathways in our brain, then we can actually start to have success in our lives. And I think that is what so many people miss. Maybe, maybe you feel the same way too. Like when they're first trying, they, they can't see that light at the end of the tunnel is what I'm trying to say when they're first trying to quit. And it just seems like I want to be able to show them how to do that, you know, here. And I, I think that's what a lot of the, my work is. Like when I do videos and things like that, I, I try to give them some hope, you know? Yeah, I agree. It's, it's hard to believe that it's possible for you when you're looking at people with years or decades of sobriety and you're stuck in it and you just feel like you'll never get out, but it is available for everybody as long as you just don't quit trying. And 
you know, whatever, whatever thing you're trying to do to quit, if that's not working, it's time to add something else to it. Try a different form of support. Talk to your doctor, look into treatment. There's a lot, we're so lucky right now that there are so many different ways to get sober. So there's just a lot of things to try out and it's never, it's never too late. You haven't pushed your brain too far. It's, it's available for everybody as long as you don't quit. Yeah. And, and so we do eventually build that, those pathways back, don't we? And we, we can reshape can, how badly damaged say, would you say a brain is say mine? I drank for, I didn't drink for 13 years, but I went pretty hard at it for a while. All of that's correctable or do we have permanent damage? How does that work? Um, it's a hard question to answer, mm-hmm. but you would know if you had permanent damage. Kind of think about it like cirrhosis. I think that's a great comparison. If you have fatty liver or um, alcoholic hepatitis, those can be reversed. If you push your liver far enough where you develop cirrhosis, that cannot be reversed. And you know when you've pushed your liver too far, like there are significant consequences Mm -hmm. with cirrhosis. Um, It can be managed and people can live a full happy life, but it's the same thing for your brain. If you push your brain too far, like you have some big, big consequences that you won't miss. Um, Like alcoholic neuropathy is an example, nerve damage from drinking. If you develop that, it it won't go away. You can manage it, um, but you're aware that you have it. For most people, we can heal our brains, and it's actually pretty crazy. Like the, I read that the when when your brain is considered like mostly healed or to have the full benefits, it's like five to seven years of sober time. So even though there's a ton of healing that happens in that first year, it just continues on and on for years and things just keep getting better. Like I thought my first year, I'm like, look at me. This is amazing. This is the best thing ever. And it just kept getting better. Um, So I think that most people can restore and improve their brain functioning, but it all depends on your genetics Mm-hmm. how much you drink, and then how many relapses. Because the cycles of going through withdrawal again and again, that has an impact too. Um, but most people can can enjoy the full benefits of sobriety for their brains. Wow. Uh, I mean, five years is definitely a mark where I will say I did feel a difference. And in AA, we have this saying that five years – your head pops out. And I don't know why they say that, but they would always say that. Tom, my my counselor would always say, yeah, five years, you don't know what you're doing yet. You know, he would, he would give me a hard time about it, but that was just to um, sort of break my shell and make sure that I was still malleable and he could work with me. But uh, yeah, five years, I guess, is a mark. I really felt pretty good at about, you know, two or three, three years. And I started to feel like, okay, uh, this is really different now. And um, 
I'm just glad that it's possible to actually heal the brain. I was so nervous about that because, you know, you, you get when you get older, you start to think about things like Alzheimer's, dementia. Um, does that play a factor in, you know, when you drink too much, does that cause early onset of those kinds of MS? Does, does it, if you have a predisposition to those things, does it trigger it sooner? Alcohol can definitely uh, trigger dementia. There's research on that, um, which really sucks. But, and I, I know a lot of people worry about developing something later in life or the cancer risk increasing. Mm -hmm. But the way that I look at it is the drinking, it's happened. I can't go back and undo the drinking. All I can do now is make sure that it doesn't happen again and take care of myself as best as I can. And go to the doctor regularly too if you're nervous. Um, and the cancer risk declines over time. It's not a it's not permanently heightened, but it does it does take time to heal. Alcohol does a lot of damage. We feel like it it's not having an impact because we can't see everything. And part of that is because we can't think clearly while we're drinking all the time. But um, it does get better. And I agree with you too. I think two years and three years, I really felt like I had a groove going, and I felt. I think two years, I felt like I was starting to see some balance in my life. Three years, I started to feel more like a, a regular person. Mm -hmm. Like I had recovered and I could live a regular life. And I didn't have to think about being sober all the time. Yeah. And being anxious when you go out and anxious in locations like restaurants and bars. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me anymore. It did the first couple of years because it was very triggering. Is there anything that, you know, you would like to say to people out there about your journey, about, you know, the benefits that sobriety, like what it's, what it's done for you and, you know, why people should really give it a shot? I think that whatever you are struggling with, whether it's low self-esteem, stress overload, relationship issues, um, feeling like you're not going to fit in, feeling like sobriety is going to be boring. A lot of people think that things are too hard right now. And when they're, when this passes or this situation resolves, then I'll deal with it. I would encourage you to deal with it now when you're thinking about it because it progresses, like we said, and it becomes harder to deal with over time. And no one ever regrets getting sober. Everybody always says, I wish I did it sooner. So I would encourage you to just connect, even if that's lurking, and just open your mind to the possibility of what sober life could be and just start there. Just be open. That is awesome. I, I thank you so much. And if you want to check out her website, you should. It's soberpowered.com. And she has some great programs on there. Great thoughts, great insights. Check it out. Jill, thank you so much for jumping on the show. Appreciate, appreciate all of your insights today. It was fantastic. Thank you so much for having me.